Welcome to Sightseeing Japan, the podcast where we explore the land of paper cranes. I'm Paul Bresson. And I'm Jason Neeling. And today our topic is the art of paper folding known as origami. And that word origami breaks down into ori, which means folding, and gami, which on its own actually would be kami, which means paper. We talked back in our Japanese language episode about how words can, uh, consonants can change their sound depending on if they're linked to other words and whatnot. Yeah, seems to be a common thing that happens. Yep. Like uh, with sushi. Yep. Sushi becomes zushi. If it's attached to uh, another word. Yep. Kami becomes gami. Oh, we also talked about how words can have different meanings. So we've talked plenty about kami being the deities, but kami is also paper. Pretty fun. Yeah, that's interesting. Yep. So the goal of origami is to fold some paper. Got a flat square of paper, fold it into something pretty, and that's origami. Yeah, modern practitioners of origami tend to discourage the use of cuts or glue or markings on the paper. Just folds. Yeah, and if you do want to cut your paper, there's actually another word for that that a lot of people consider completely separate from origami. That word is kirigami. The kiri means cutting, so paper cutting. Pretty simple. And you've probably seen one of the most common, most popular origami models, which is that paper crane. Pretty famous around the world. Yeah, I feel like everyone's probably seen a paper crane at some point. Yeah, they're hard to miss. You know, I was under the impression before researching this episode that there were pretty strict rules about origami. Like you have to start with a perfectly square piece of paper, nothing but folding. But really there is no authority, it seems like, on origami or what's allowed and what's not or how you use the word. There's all sorts of stuff people do that they call origami. It's an art form. It's like painting. You get your brush wet with paint and fling it at the canvas and create splatters, and you can call that painting. Mm -hmm. Or all sorts of different techniques that I'm sure I don't even know about. Yeah, so even in traditional Japanese origami, they were not strict about these ideas. They might start with different shaped pieces of paper, or they might cut the paper. We're going to see in the history section that back then it didn't really matter. As long as you're folding the paper in some way, it's origami. Yeah. Speaking of the history, let's get into that. Ready for it, Paul? Yeah, let's do history. All right. Paper folding seems to have a very long history all over the world. People like folding paper. It's fun to do. Even if you just got like a little gum wrapper or something, it's hard to resist just playing around with it, folding it. Definitely. And the more I looked at different sources, the more it seemed like people were folding paper all over the world ever since paper was invented. It's just something that people naturally like to do. It's probably one of the first things people did when they had paper. Yeah. So separate paper folding traditions arose in different parts of the world. For example, in Europe, China, and Japan. And those separate traditions are fairly well documented. But it's kind of unclear where certain origami ideas or paper folding ideas originated and spread. Like these ideas have been going all over or maybe or ideas popped up in different parts of the world kind of simultaneously. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me at all. You know, folding paper, I bet a lot of people would come to the same result independently. Yeah, yeah. So it is believed that paper was first made in China in the first or second century. 
So it's probably safe to say that origami started, or paper folding, started somewhere around there. Yeah. And sometime in the 6th century, it's believed that Buddhist monks first carried paper to Japan. Yeah. Like all that other stuff that came to Japan around that time. And there's evidence that the paper crane was popular by the end of the 1400s, but the first unambiguous reference to a paper model is in a poem that was written in 1680 by Ihara Saikaku that mentions a butterfly design that was used at Shinto weddings. Yeah, the butterflies represent the bride and the groom. Yeah. But there were other ceremonial functions in the Edo period, too, that used paper folding. For example, noshi. Noshi are these little folded pouches, and you would stick a dried piece of abalone or meat in there and attach them to gifts to express good wishes, kind of like greeting cards. Yeah. Samurai warriors were known to exchange gifts adorned with noshi. Yeah. I actually have a noshi that I got. Yeah. I hope there's still not a chunk of fish in there. They put toothpicks in there (laughs) instead of meat or abalone, but... That's an interesting substitute. Yeah. Uh, I got it in Kanazawa, actually, right by the samurai district, where I was checking out all those old samurai residences. So it kind of makes sense, the connection there. Yeah. At the time, I had no idea what it was. I'm like, oh, that's thanks. (laughs) That's cool, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, it was like a little museum kind of thing that I went to there. Nice. Yeah. So over time, paper folding caught on as a recreational activity, but from the very beginning, it was very much a religious thing in a lot of different ways. And I mean, when it first came to Japan, paper was really expensive. So that was kind of the only way it was being used was in religious ceremonies. But even once it became a recreational activity, they were still not strict about those cuts or using a square piece of paper. There was just all sorts of folding going on. Just have some fun and see what you can make. Yeah. Meanwhile, in Europe, napkin folding was a pretty big deal during the 17th and 18th centuries. And though it mostly died out not too long after that period, some of those folding techniques stuck around. Yeah, I mean, I've sat down at tables before with some napkin folding artwork on them. Yeah, it's still a thing. Yeah, it is. see it once in a while. But the techniques that they were using for those napkins made their way to paper folding as well. So in Germany, in the 1840s, there was this teacher named Friedrich Froebel. I'm sure I'm pronouncing his name wrong. How do you, how do you pronounce that O with the two dots on top of it, Paul? You took German. Yeah, it's like a long, long vowel. You said pretty well. Froebel. 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 Friedrich Froebel. So he used similar folding techniques in his curriculum to teach about geometry and foster creativity. And Paul, did you realize that this is actually the guy that invented kindergarten? Yeah. Thank you, Friedrich. I learned a lot in kindergarten. Yeah, kindergarten seems like a good idea. And his, his original idea of kindergarten was it was supposed to be a structured education system to educate kids through play. Kids got to be having fun. They're going to absorb that information, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm down with that. That's a good idea. Yeah. Also around this time, in the 1800s, there was a popular paper figure in Europe called the Pajarita. I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong, too. Uh, But this Pajarita, Pajarita, maybe, that was also a bird, but it's not the same as the crane. It's kind of chunkier, blockier. Uh, You got to look up a picture. little chunky bird. Yeah, but isn't that kind of funny that this crane in Japan and this little bird figure in Europe, like they're both birds? 
different parts of the world kind of developed around maybe the same time. Isn't that weird? Must be aliens. Gotta be. Just like there's pyramids in different parts of the world. Yeah. Has to be aliens. That makes more sense than anything this I've is, heard before in my life. This is alien paper folding technology. That explains it. So anyway, in the 1860s, when Japan opened its borders, as we've said before, they imported that kindergarten system from Froebel, including those German paper folding ideas. So now you got those original Japanese ones mixing with these German ideas that were brought in. And this is supposedly where those ideas of no cutting and how the starting shape has to be a square, where those ideas started to become popular in Japan. Yeah, and I think part of that is like they were teaching it to kids, so made it easy for kids. Like, here's a square piece of paper. You don't have to use the scissors. You don't have to cut anything. Just fold. Yeah. So when the 1900s rolled around, in the early part of the century, there was a guy in Japan, Akira Yoshizawa, who was very influential in the world of origami. And he was mostly self-taught, but he created completely new types of models and made a bunch of innovations in the field. Pretty amazing guy. I, I saw that he was described as a genius. Yeah. I think I saw where he said he had over 10,000 designs that wow. he didn't even publish. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> He's also credited with uh, helping increase interest in origami because he invented a notation system to indicate how to full origami models. Yeah. So, so you could write a book now showing how to make your creations. Yeah. And like there's a clear standardized system showing how these folds are supposed to go. So it made it a lot easier to figure out what you were supposed to be doing and help spread the art of paper folding all over the place and brought about a bit of a renaissance in origami. Saw that he was also known as the grand master of origami and the father of modern creative origami. Wow, nice titles. Yeah. I'd like to be the grandmaster of something someday. I'll never be the grandmaster of anything. <laughs> Maybe I can be the grandmaster of this podcast. This will be my <laughs> crowning achievement. Yeah, I'll get you a plaque someday. Nice. We can give each other awards. <laughs> <laughs> so in modern times, the word origami refers to all paper folding regardless of the country of origin. And I mean, everywhere in the world, they use that same word for paper folding, but it doesn't seem like anybody really knows why that word stuck. Like, why did the Japanese word become used for paper folding all over the world, you know? Well, I don't remember German well enough, but the word for paper folding in German is probably like 30 characters long and nobody can say it. Mm. So maybe that's how origami, origami, it rolls off the tongue. Yeah, it's a nice sounding word. I think, I think however it happened, we chose right. Yeah. So as we mentioned, the most popular, the most classic of all Japanese origami figures is that paper crane, which is known in Japanese as the orizuru. And again, this is a very straightforward word. The ori is the same as from origami. That means folded. And tsuru is a crane. So folded crane. And... I was surprised to learn that this is actually a representation of a specific type of crane. The uh, red-necked crane? No. The black-necked crane? Nope. The Japanese crane? Getting closer. <laughs> the Japanese red-billed crane? Oh, oh, Paul, you're so close. Ah, oh, I'm not going to get it. 
It is the Japanese red crowned crane. Oh, yeah. I had a lot of the words. Yeah, you were one <laughs> word away. Apparently, it's referred to as the Honorable Lord Crane in Japanese culture. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's a fancy crane. We're not just talking normal, common, boring, everyday cranes. So what is it that cranes represent, again, in Japanese society? Longevity, I believe, is one. Yeah, like we talked about it in the Japanese gardens, right? Yeah. I read that this crane, it's believed that its wings carried souls up to paradise. That's an impressive task. Yeah. And this crane figures into perhaps one of the most significant stories in history involving origami. The story of a girl named Sasaki Sadako. Sadako was exposed to radiation during the atomic bombing of Hiroshima as an infant. Yeah, she was only two years old. The bomb was dropped on August 6th, 1945, only a mile from her home. Wow. Yeah, she was blown out the window but survived with no apparent injuries somehow. So her mom grabbed her and fled, but they were caught in black rain. Paul, what's black rain? Uh, rain with a lot of radiation in it. Yeah, nuclear fallout, basically. So they were exposed to a lot of radiation. But Sasaki grew up like her peers, you know, pretty much normal, until at age 11, she started to develop swelling and other symptoms. She went to the hospital and was diagnosed with leukemia, which... Not long after they found out was definitely caused by the bomb. Like there were plenty of other people around that were having the same sort of symptoms. And so she was given only a year to live. At the hospital, her father told her about a legend that said, if you fold a thousand paper cranes, you'll be granted a wish. So she started to do just that. And there's a novel about her called Sadako and the Thousand Paper Cranes. In the novel, it says that she died after only folding 644 cranes, but apparently that's just for dramatic effect. Yeah, I heard her family was saying, no, she folded them all. Yeah. She got to a thousand. Yeah, and she kept folding them even after that, but she did pass away in October of 1955 at the age of 12. Very sad. Yeah, and the paper crane has become a bit of a symbol of peace. In Japan, too. And I've heard that related to this story. Yeah, definitely. Just three years after she died, a statue of her holding a crane was unveiled at the Hiroshima Peace Memorial Park. And now children from all over Japan fold cranes and send them to the memorial. If you go there, you can see these giant like glass boxes filled with thousands and thousands of paper cranes from like school kids sending them in. I heard part of the story was that as she was folding all the cranes, the other kids with leukemia kept dying, and she eventually realized that she was going to die too. Man. So she changed her wish, which was probably to get better at first, mm -hmm. to wishing for world peace and an end to suffering. So that's part of that link to where the cranes started to represent the peace movement. That's heavy, man. Yeah, I know. So yeah, Sasaki is now a symbol of the effects of nuclear war, and August 6th is known as Annual Peace Day, and it's dedicated to her. Touching. Yeah. All right, well, that was the sad part of the episode. Let's, let's come back to lighthearted paper folding, shall we? Yeah, let's get a little more into the technical details of uh, origami. Yeah, so let's talk about the paper. Yeah, 
What do you what do you start with? Well, if you buy origami paper, it's going to be square, and you can get it in all different sizes. The most common ones are going to be between 1 to 10 inches, but I mean, you can fold origami out of anything. You know, actually, as a kid, I got really into origami like in elementary school because they first taught us how to make that paper crane. And from there, I kind of just dove in and started making all sorts of stuff. Sounds like you. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, so, you know, as a kid, my parents made me go to church Mm -hmm. and I was not super into it. You just fold origami all day? Well, I uh, I would ask my mom for a piece of gum at church. But it wasn't all about the gum. Like I would chew the gum, but once I get the wrapper, I can make that into a square and then I'd fold paper cranes out of it. And I made some really, really tiny ones too. Probably less than a quarter of an inch, some of these (laughs) cranes I made. I mean, I, (laughs) not to brag, but I got pretty good at folding these little tiny paper cranes. Those little nimble fingers you had when you were a kid. Yeah. I wonder if I could do that now. (laughs) Tweezers maybe. Yeah. You can make them super tiny. Anyway, okay, so paper. You want the paper to be thin, making it easier to fold. Yeah, and easier to crease. Yeah. It's really important to be able to make those creases. Because sometimes you make a fold and then you undo that fold and the crease comes in later on. But the paper, so usually when you buy it, it's going to be white on one side, colored on the other. You can also find paper with different patterns. I've seen like flowery paper. You can get ones with different colors on both sides. You can even get foil ones. Those look pretty cool. Yeah, you get like gold foil or silver foil yeah or even multicolored foil on one side that's the fancy stuff yeah another common piece of folding like the gum wrappers mm-hmm. is banknotes oh yeah lots of people make origami out of like dollar bills or euros or whatever yeah and you can get some pretty cool looking things because of all the faces and pictures on those things like the way you fold them can end up looking like pretty cool yeah now that you mention it i think at one point i folded one out of a 20 dollar bill that was like a ring and you could make it so that uh there's like the band around your finger and then on on the top of it where a gem would be that's like the 20 from the (laughs) bill that's cool yeah yeah i mean you can pretty much fold out of anything you don't need to buy official origami paper and you can you can fold anything you can grab a newspaper and start folding yeah traditionally in japan a type of paper called washi was used. You know, I love how straightforward all these Japanese words are. Washi just means Japanese paper. Wa is Japanese and she is paper. So this paper is made by hand in a traditional style and it's generally tougher than the origami paper that you might buy. And washi is used for a lot of things in Japan. Maybe we should do an episode about washi paper sometime. I bet there's some interesting stuff there. Sure. So tools. Do you need tools? No, a lot of people fold origami with no tools at all. Yeah, I've never used a tool. I feel like I've done all right for myself in my origami experiences. But you did mention tweezers a moment ago. I did, yeah. You can use tweezers for helping. If you've got fat fingers and you're trying to make little tiny delicate folds, it could be a useful thing. Yeah, paper clips can be useful for holding things in place, kind of acting like an extra hand. And you can get something called a bone folder. Which sounds pretty cool. Yeah, or a folding bone. And what's that? You know, when I first saw a picture, they look exactly like collar stays. You know what I'm talking about? No. I thought it looked like kind of like a nail file, but it wasn't a file. Yeah. 
Well, like a collar stay is that little piece of plastic that you stick into a fancy like dress shirt collar oh, okay. to keep it stiff, you know? Okay, yep. Like it looks just like that, the exact same shape. One end is rounded and the other one's a little bit more pointy, but they're bigger than collar stays. They're maybe like five inches long or so, and they can be made of bone, but a lot of times these days you'll find plastic ones instead. Yeah, I've heard they're used to help make really sharp creases, right? Yeah. Some people use rulers or even embossers to help score the creases mm-hmm. a little extra. Yep, you need a little extra help. Uh, and some people spray their completed models to help them keep their shape. Yeah. Should we talk about some techniques? Yeah. What are, what are some of the basic techniques to origami? Well, first I want to talk about the Yoshizawa Randlet system. That seems to be the predominant system of origami today. Yeah, if you get an origami book, you're going to see these different types of lines in there representing different types of folds, and it's pretty much standardized. Like all all the common books that you're going to find are going to use this Yoshizawa Randlet system. So remember in the history section, we mentioned Akira Yoshizawa, that grand master guy. Mm -hmm. So he proposed a system. He put together different types of notation for these folds. And this guy, Samuel Randlett, and his buddy, Robert Harbin, they picked up those techniques. They added a couple of their own things, and they published a book called The Art of Origami in 1961, presenting this Yoshizawa Randlett system. And it quickly became the standard method of notation around the world. So there are a bunch of different types of folds that it describes, and we're not going to talk about all of them because that's hard to do without visual aids, but the most basic folds are a valley fold and a mountain fold. So in this system, a valley fold is represented by a dotted line, and the valley, I'm going to try to describe this without a visual aid. So you got a piece of paper in front of you. You fold a corner of that, let's say, over the front of the rest of the paper, and then you unfold it. You got a valley, right? There's a part of the paper where it's indented. Yeah. I'm following you. Yeah. So a mountain fold, which is represented in this system by a dashed and dotted line, is exactly the opposite. You fold a piece behind the paper, you unfold it, you're going to have a little mountain, a little crease popping up above the paper, right? Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. So there are other parts of this notation system, like sometimes dotted lines show folds hidden behind the paper. A thin line can show a crease where you did a fold and then undid the fold. There are different types of arrows to show you where the paper is supposed to be going. And things get really complicated when you get to compound folds, which is where you're kind of making multiple folds at the same time. I remember having trouble with that when I first learned the crane. Like you're looking at these pictures and it's like, how did they get this shape out of the previous step? This doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Compound folds are tricky. But the system helps a lot. Helps explain those. And now, I mean, now we got YouTube, you can figure anything out. Yep. And we should also mention that there are common origami bases. Yes. There are standard bases that are used for a wide variety of models. One of them is called the bird base. And obviously that's where you start with to get the crane. Yeah. But the idea of these bases is that it's kind of a starting form that can be, you you can continue on from there to get to all sorts of different things. Yeah, it's a good starting point, and then you can mold the specific details you're looking for out of it. Exactly. 
There's a fish base, a frog base. Yep, they have names. Yeah. And if you learn those, you're well on your way to being able to fold all sorts of things. Yep. If you can quickly get to whatever base you need, it's much easier. Yep. So what are some different types of origami? Yeah, I was, I'd never heard of a lot of these before I started researching. There are a bunch of different types. Yeah. One I thought was cool was action origami. Yeah. So these are paper models that you can move. They do cool things. Like you've probably seen the crane, how you can make its wings flap if you move it a certain way. Or maybe you've seen the little frog where you can put your finger down on its back and make it jump around. Yeah, those are my favorites, the little jumping frogs. Yeah. Uh, There's also modular origami. Yeah, and I've seen some really impressive examples of this. So this is where you would make a bunch of identical pieces and then you attach them all together into something much bigger yep should we talk about wet folding yeah we should oh man this stuff is incredible so normally origami uses just straight folds flat surfaces your finished model usually looks like it's kind of made up of a bunch of polygons like n64 graphics right yep but in wet folding you use a thicker heavier paper so that it can handle being wet. And when you wet it, you can mold it into curves. You don't just have straight lines to work with anymore. You can make a very realistic sculpture. Like it's almost more like sculpting than it is folding, or at least a combination of the two. Yeah, I, I've heard it's used a lot to make really natural looking animals and things like that, because you can get more of those natural curves in. Yeah, if you look up pictures, it's totally insane how realistic some of these things look like you can make them look exactly like a real animal don't you think yeah absolutely and a lot of times if you're doing wet folding you might apply some sort of water soluble adhesive to that hardens as it dries so that you have a more durable finished product yeah it'll hold its shape well yeah there's another type of origami called pure land origami what's that Pure land origami adds in restrictions that you can only use the simple mountain and valley folds and that all the folds have to have straightforward locations. Yeah, I saw that this was developed in the 70s to help both people that are new to origami, kind of an intro to origami, or to help out people with limited motor skills. Yeah. And there are some people attracted to it just for the challenge of creating within the strict constraints of that style. I can see that. Sometimes limitations help with inspiration or creativity. Yeah. Uh, There's also origami tessellations. Yeah, these are really cool. This is a pretty new form, relatively. Uh, This was developed in the 60s, and I saw it's been growing in popularity over the last 20 years or so. So... In this one, you're going to take a flat piece of paper and you're going to fold it so that you end up with all these interlocking designs on it, but it's still relatively flat. Like this is the kind of thing you could stick in a frame and put it on your wall or something, but they're just really impressive. Like the little designs that you can end up with look really cool. It's hard to describe, but if you look up pictures of origami tessellations, they're pretty impressive. Yeah, I enjoyed looking at a few of those. So there's another type of origami called strip folding. Instead of starting with a square piece of paper, you start out with a long strip of paper. And there are a bunch of different things that you can do with this. I saw one popular one is this little three-dimensional star. 
think they call it the Chinese star. Have you seen that? Yeah, I saw that. Pretty cool. So I don't know. There's just a lot of different possibilities when you start out with a different shaped piece of paper like that. Yeah. So there is a connection between origami and mathematics. You could argue that origami is all mathematics. It's all about the possibilities of the folds in this paper. What can you do by folding a simple piece of paper? And there are a lot of people that study that field of math these days. There's an American physicist, Robert Lang, who developed something called circle packing, along with a Japanese person, Meguro Toshiyuki. And circle packing is the idea of using math to first allocate sections of the paper to different areas. So when you're making a sculpture with a piece of paper, the last step is these little finishing touches where you're adding a lot of little details. But kind of the main problem that you're trying to solve when you're designing a new origami figure is you need to figure out how to get paper in the places that you need it to be so that you can do those little finishing touches, right? Yeah. So it's not that hard to make a little claw at the end of a leg, but you need the leg to be there first. Exactly. So this idea of circle packing is all about the theory, the mathematics behind it, so that you can get enough paper to where you need it to be. Yeah, that, that, yeah, make that makes sense? sense. So that lets you develop really complex shapes much more easily once you figure out that piece of it. And now there are even computer programs that can help you out with that. They can map out the allocation of paper to different parts of the model before you've even folded a piece of paper, before you even touched a piece of paper. Yeah, so there's what's called technical origami, where if you're using advanced mathematics and maybe these computer programs to help you out, you map out all the folds that you're going to make before you even start making any fold on the paper at all. Yeah, so crazy. it's totally mathed out design. And then you just fold it as designed and you get what you get. Yeah. And a lot of these types of folding techniques have even been applied in engineering in different fields. Yeah, I thought this was super cool. So they've used origami inspiration and math uh, in creating airbags for cars to help deploy from a flat position to a full position as fast as possible. Yeah, it's awesome. And not, you know, how often does an airbag get caught and not deploy? They work pretty much all the time, which is incredible. Yeah. Also, uh, it's used in stents for heart surgery or uh, artery surgery, I guess. Yeah, stents are the little things that hold blood vessels open, right? Yeah. So the reason that's related to origami is because it goes in collapsed and then expands out from there. So they study how to fold something up so that they know what it looks like when it pops back out. Yeah, pretty amazing. I mean, those things must be super, super tiny. They've got to be, yeah, to go inside your arteries and just pop open. We truly are living in the future. And another one that I thought was super cool is what's called the Mura Map Fold. It's been used to deploy large solar panel arrays for space satellites. Cool. Because those have to be inside the spaceship when it's launched, and then they fold out once it's in space. Very cool. Yeah. So if you're in Japan and you want to experience a little bit of origami, 
There's actually the Nippon Origami Museum in Terminal 1 of the Narita Airport. So you can see a bunch of cool designs, a bunch of flowers and things in there. Um, And they've also got souvenirs and some tasty desserts I saw. Awesome. Maybe I'll have to fly into Narita again just so I can check that out. I know, right? I kind of want to. Yeah. And then also in Tokyo, there's the National Origami Center, which is just a few minutes from Ochinomizu Station in central Tokyo. And I'm sure there's origami all over the country, too. You'll, You'll see it in all sorts of little places where maybe you wouldn't expect it. Yeah, I'm sure. That's all I got today. That's all I got, too. I guess it's the end of the episode, then. Sounds like it. If you want to check out some cool pictures, check out our Instagram at SJP Podcast. If you want to reach out to us, and we would love to hear from you, you can send an email to feedback at sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. Paul, what are we doing next time? On the next episode, we're going to be talking about the Tokyo 2020 Summer Olympics. That's coming up. That's going to be a very popular event, so we figured we'd do an episode about that to give it a, people an idea of what's going on, what's going to happen. Yeah, sounds like a pretty big deal. It looks like it might be the most popular Olympics ever of all time. Yeah, it's going to be a very big deal. Yeah. So that should be fun. It will. A lot of cool stuff we'll learn, I think. Definitely. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.